Playing Indian constitutes a structural form of colonial theft, and it must be tackled. Indigenous people's erasure in the dominant U.S. racial imaginary exists alongside our actual survival as peoples that refuse to be fully absorbed into the political and physical bodies of others. This compels a phenomenon that Harvard University historian Philip J. Deloria calls playing Indian. In his 1998 book by the same name, Deloria focused on mascots, Boy Scout rituals, and other forms of dressing up as Indian. He did not focus on the false claims to Indigenous ancestry or identity, quote-unquote, that I will focus on here. But his historical investigation also supports an analysis of the centuries-long intractable practice in U.S. American life of a more literal form of playing Indian, false claims to Indigenous ancestry and identity, in which often multi-generational players can forget they are pretending. From a rich archive of historical data, Deloria draws on British writer D.H. Lawrence's analysis of an essentially unfinished and incomplete U.S. American consciousness that produced an unparalleled national identity crisis. Lawrence saw the Indian as at the heart of American ambivalence. Savage Indians served Americans as oppositional figures against whom one might imagine a civilized national self. Coded as freedom, however, wild Indianness proved equally attractive, setting up a dialectic of simultaneous desire and repulsion. Lawrence wrote that no place exerts its full influence upon a newcomer until the old inhabitant is dead or absorbed. Therefore, the unexpressed spirit of America could not be fulfilled without Indians either being exterminated or assimilated into white America. Deloria summarizes, and I quote, the determinacy, the indeterminacy of American identity stems in part from the nation's inability to deal with Indian people. Americans wanted to feel natural affinity with the continent, and it was Indians who could teach them such aboriginal closeness. Yet, in order to control the landscape, they had to destroy the original inhabitants. Half-articulated Indianness continually lurks behind various efforts at American self-imagination, unquote. Now, I write elsewhere that identity is a poor substitute for relations, that it does not necessarily imply ongoing relating. It might imply discrete biological conjoinings within one's genetic ancestry, and it can spur alliances, but it can also exist as a largely individualistic idea, as something considered to be held once and for all, unchanging within one's own body, whether through biological or social imprinting, as one's body's property. Fabricating relations that did not exist are the crux of the problem with false or overreaching identity claims. I have given multiple talks at universities across the U.S., Canada, and globally, offered commentary on various aspects of the phenomenon of playing Indian in multiple podcasts and Twitter threads. Some of you will know my analyses related to DNA testing and Indigenous ancestry claims, especially related to Elizabeth Warren's stereotypical Cherokee ancestry claims that first came into the public eye in 2012 and her regrettable DNA test back in 2018. I've also been called to weigh in on other high-profile Indigenous identity fraud cases, including Canadian writer Joseph Boyden and U.S.-based academic Andrea Smith. I've also been asked to comment publicly on many more, including more recently that of Canadian director Michelle Latimer, who also asserted Indigenous identity and has been publicly challenged for a lack of evidence. 
Warren, Boyden, Smith, and Latimer are only four among many who make such claims. A current investigation by independent Diné and Dakota journalist Jacqueline Keeler demonstrates the widespread occurrence of false identity claims by public figures in academia, the arts, literature, TV, film, and other fields. She and her research team have compiled a much-debated alleged pretendians list of nearly 200 individuals, and she plans to calculate the financial return to them in their roles as public-facing natives. You can go to her Twitter feed at J.F. Keeler. That's at J-F-K-E-E-L-E-R for more information on the list. I'm not doing a fuller explanation and analysis of the list here, but rather touching on structural problems related to pretendianism and how those are reflected in debates surrounding the list. I have been working on a book chapter for a while now on the predicament of playing Indian in a contemporary mascot and identity claims context. However, given the recent vociferous social media targeting of Keeler and her list, I decided to write the shorter piece and quickly. I've already discussed uh, the list at length on air with fellow media indigena podcasters, Rick Harp and Candace Collison. You can listen to our two, uh, two episode discussion, contemplating the consequences of colonial cosplay part one and creating culpability for colonial cosplay part two. We dive deeply into the issues in the media indigenous episodes, and I figured that was sufficient commentary for me on the issue. I will put links to all sources cited in here uh, in uh, audio notes. I woke up yesterday morning, though, to a message of concern from one Indigenous person from here in Canada about the social media targeting of the list and Jacqueline Keeler. The messenger is a person whose politics and defense of Indigenous peoples and lands I deeply respect. They are also a global and anti-imperialist thinker. They asked me, had I seen the drama and what was being done to Keeler on Twitter? I responded, yes, I have. And I've also occasionally been tagged in the past few days by Twitter users pressuring me and others to unfriend Jacqueline Keeler and disavow our professional association with her. But I ignore Twitter strangers pressuring me especially strangers with subpar analyses based on shallow examinations of evidence and deflection. I write and speak complex and nuanced analyses every day on these issues. Identity, quote unquote, and relations in broad strokes are central to all of my work. Engaging in conversations that are essentially a cacophony of echoes across centuries of colonialism is complex, exhausting, and often thankless. I choose where and how I allot my time, and so do others who stand in different places. As a journalist and commentator, respectively, Jacqueline Keeler and I have communicated multiple times since the Warren incident in 2018 about the identity fraud problem. As I stated on the Media Indigena episodes, Keeler and I were part of a group of commentators, genealogists, and reporters who weighed in on the Elizabeth Warren situation in 2018 and all the way back to 2012. In 2018, when the story really blew up because of Warren's expected presidential run and her misguided DNA test, some of us began to communicate as a group in order to manage our responses to the issue and to make sure Cherokee voices were foregrounded where appropriate. Back to my messenger yesterday morning. They asked me, given my larger platform, 
to please weigh in on the attempted deplatforming, in their words, of an Indigenous woman, Keeler, on Twitter by other Indigenous people. Then yesterday afternoon, I also talked for a couple of hours with two Indigenous women from back home in South Dakota about the list and the social media targeting of Keeler. These two women offered me advice from rural tribal communities in South Dakota about what people are thinking of this situation, some of the concerns tribal people have, and what my friends think I should emphasize in writing this. They too agreed that I should weigh in because of my platform and my background in studying this issue. They both thought that not everyone who was similarly concerned with the grave and widespread problem of fraudulent identity claims is in a position to weigh in. Others besides myself feel more at risk or vulnerable by publicly speaking on this topic, and they don't have the audience that I have, even if they did feel okay to speak. This sentiment of fear and of the personal and professional risks of Indigenous people speaking out is also expressed by Inuit documentary filmmaker and activist Alethea Arnacook-Burrill in the February 15th, 2021 Canada Land podcast on Canadian filmmaker Michelle Latimer's Indigenous identity case. The Canada Land podcast is an exemplary treatment of this issue and the considerable pain and discomfort it causes in Indigenous communities when those who should be in good relation with our communities betray us through false identity claims. And paradoxically, sometimes those with unsupportable ancestral claims actually do come into lived relation with our communities, but that does not negate the harm done by their contributions to this overwhelming structural problem. I won't do an exhaustive assessment of all of the charges against Jacqueline Keeler circulating on Twitter. I will focus on a few charges that I think are at the center of the firestorm, some of which I think are badly analyzed and under-evidenced, and that regularly inhibit us undertaking the necessary analyses to seriously undercut the phenomenon of false identity slash ancestry claims. Number one. A central charge is that the list is anti-Black. I have yet to see this backed up by evidence. As I understand it, I last saw the list a few weeks ago. There is one Black person on it and about 180 white people. The rest are people that are probably best identified as Latino slash X or Asian, both of those in quotes. People look to be not actually analyzing the list itself but deflecting toward other threads and conversations some years old and their charges that Jacqueline Keeler and therefore a list with one black person is anti-black. Number two, there are a couple of individuals on the list known by other researchers too, to have no native ancestry, but with tribal citizenship, they are both white coded individuals. I say that mainly in light of the charges of anti-blackness. There are some especially strong objections in Indian country to these two individuals being on the list. My understanding, knowing their media documented stories, is that they are on the list because their histories involve fabricated ancestry. Nonetheless, those two are claimed today via tribal citizenship for complicated but legitimate reasons. Some in Indian country feel that if the two tribes involved confer citizenship on those individuals, end of story, they're not pretendians. I see their point. I also see the point of highlighting the shared history of fabricated ancestry in our communities. Keeler is attempting to show how widespread and longstanding is the practice of fabricating Indigenous ancestry in order to claim resources, be it land in the 19th century or scholarships, university admissions, grants, prizes, and job opportunities in the 20th and 21st centuries. Number three. 
Perhaps the most frequent charge against the list is that it is a list and feels McCarthy-esque to some people. I don't find this charge compelling. I'm interested in hearing substantive and nuanced arguments that a list is inherently problematic. I just haven't heard them yet. The McCarthy cliche isn't sufficient for me. No one is advocating rounding up false identity claimants, interrogating, imprisoning, or deporting them. No one is disallowing their speech. In fact, they are being asked to speak into account in a way that makes their relations right. We have all kinds of lists in this world that designate who is eligible for all kinds of resources. This is a list that does the opposite. It says, no, actually, these people receiving resources as public natives are not in fact native at all. In fact, most of them are white people with well-documented white and European ancestries and should therefore not be accessing benefits as native people. We debate lists regularly in Indian country, chief among them enrollment lists. I've also written and spoken extensively about the dynamic process of tribal citizenship and enrollment and the difficult job that Indigenous communities have in deploying quote-unquote citizenship in a colonial infrastructure in which we must survive, but which was forced onto us as the only alternative to death. Number four. Another charge against the list, although this seems to be less common on social media than the previous three points, is that it should not have been made available to anyone outside of Keeler and her research team until it was fully vetted and Keeler's associated story or stories published. This is a question I have myself. I am not a journalist. I don't understand why give members of the public access via a Google Doc to a list that is not completely vetted and the publication of this investigation not yet written. I will be interested to see a fuller journalistic methodology published explaining this choice. One of my South Dakota acquaintances also expressed this interest and concern. Let me return to the rest of the points that my two acquaintances in South Dakota emphasized when we talked yesterday. The points they thought I should emphasize here. Remember that Jacqueline Keeler has Dakota relatives in South Dakota while she is a citizen of the other people she comes from, the Navajo Nation. She is not a total stranger to the two women I talk to. We always know someone who knows someone's family. Like many of us, they are not comfortable with her method. And one of the women expressed the concern of some people in her own tribal community that issues such as quote-unquote identity fraud among public figures might not be the most pressing issue for our communities. My friend asked me why I thought this was a pressing issue that will actually harm many Indigenous community members. I explained to her the structural trickle-down of having non-Indigenous people with non-Indigenous community standpoints rising through the ranks to represent us and theorize Indigenous peoplehood, sovereignty, anti-colonialism, and colonialism. These people become thought leaders, quote-unquote, institutional decision-makers and policy advisors to governmental leaders with regulatory and economic power over our peoples. They then shape academic and public discourse about who we allegedly are, what our lives allegedly look like, and what they think should be done about and to us. My friend said, thank you for clarifying, and she agreed it is an important issue. She also told me one of the reasons that more traditional people don't call out publicly those who falsely claim Indigenous ancestry is that it is not the way things are often historically done. When someone is acting inappropriately, they will be given enough rope to hang themselves. 
(laughs) One does not always come at someone making false claims directly, but over time, the inappropriate person shows themselves to be who they truly are. They will eventually out themselves. Perhaps this has happened in various cases, but more privately. This leads to another point my friends in South Dakota made. They agree with something Jacqueline Keeler has pointed out, that while the pretendian phenomenon is widespread and has been going on for centuries, we often do not share these stories widely. Perhaps this is related in our Ocheti Shakawin case in South Dakota to not directly confronting this problem so often. We also may feel pained and guilty and disbelieve ourselves before finally facing overwhelming evidence that something isn't right. This is especially the case when pretendians today and historically marry into our kinship structures. One of my friends from home said that we will do much to protect our children, and that includes tolerating the lies of individuals who have been, who have born children with our people. Jacqueline Keeler has also called attention to the strategy of marrying in. And I've read the work of Cherokee genealogists who also cite that as a not uncommon strategy historically for people to get their hands on native land and resources. As Alethea Arnacook-Burrill said on the Canada Land podcast, it is painful to finally confront someone we know and care about once we realize there are many holes in their story. We don't tend to go public with these stories until we feel we have no choice. In the Andrea Smith case, the confrontation took years and was deeply painful for those who were closest to her. They were the ones who did the confronting. They took risks and paid a price in terms of loss of relationships and professional opportunities. These risks are what people in the Canada Land episode feared, and they noted that many people refused to speak on air precisely because of those risks. Because of these legitimate and careful ways in community of dressing the problem, of false ancestry claims, our many distinct accounts of false assertions remain siloed and therefore the deep structural problem is obscured. Instead, we make jokes about wannabes and Cherokee great-grandmother princesses. We often laugh privately and publicly at the phenomenon without calling out individuals. Maybe in our ongoing laughter, we are sending a message to the pretendians within earshot. We know. What are you going to do about it? When pointed cross-Native conversations about this issue do occur, it tends to be in whisper networks, given the preference expressed by many who've weighed in on this debate for various... Let me start over. When pointed cross-Native conversations about this issue do occur, it tends to be in whisper networks, given the preference expressed by many who've weighed in on this debate for specific communities calling their own in or out and from my friend's perspective, for people learning their lessons in due time. This more delicate, isolated approach to confronting pretendianism can obscure its structural impact. The list is an uncomfortable and controversial attempt to make the impact clear. At the end of our conversation, my friends told me, speaking of the Twitter storm and targeting of her character, that one does not have to like Jacqueline Keeler to agree that false claims to Indigenous ancestry are a serious and growing problem, and that something must be done. While I don't yet see how this list is anti-Black or McCarthy-esque, I clearly see that false ancestry and identity claims are a final act of theft in a long history 
of multiple layers and strategies of theft. See the pithy schema below to understand this point more fully. And I'll describe this visual to you. So it uh, is a tweet with a uh, a chart that was posted on February 16th, uh, 2020 by at uh, P-A-Z-U-Z-U-M-Y-C-E-T-E. Um, and the chart is called The Eight Stages of White Settler Colonial Denial. And I'm going to read through those eight stages. Number one, they didn't exist. This is Tara Nullius. Complete denial of Indigenous presence in a given area, country, province, etc., includes denial of indigeneity, E.D., E.G., Indigenous peoples are settlers too. Number two, if they did, they weren't here. Also Terranalius. Denial that Indigenous people inhabit, travel, harvest, exist in a specific area, often based on Eurocentric definitions of evidence of occupation. Number three stage, if they were, they didn't use the land. That's the doctrine of discovery. Denial that Indigenous people have a connection with land, often based on Eurocentric worldviews of the land as something to be owned and extracted. Number four, if they did, they didn't deserve it. This is the great chain of being. Denial that Indigenous people have rights to their lands, often based on Eurocentric value judgments of primitive versus civilized, nomadic versus sedentary. Stage number five. If they did, they lost it. This is the right of conquest. Denial that Indigenous people retain their rights to their lands, often based on colonially imposed European systems of law and might makes right worldviews. Number six, if they didn't, it doesn't matter anymore. This is Westphalian sovereignty. Denial that Indigenous rights are still binding and take precedence, often based on false claims of supremacy of colonial legal institutions and systems. Stage number seven. If it does, we need to move on. This is liberalism. Denial that violations of Indigenous rights require redress, often based on claims redress is disruptive, unfair, reverse racism, and false calls for equality. Stage number eight. If we can't, we are you. This is self-indigenization. This is denial of separateness of Indigenous peoples and rights, often based on attempts to reduce Indigenous rights to human rights, claims to indigeneity, etc. Okay, now, the above tweet, this visual, has a BLM hashtag in it, along with a hashtag reparations and hashtag indigenous self-determination. These hashtags that represent a growing number of anti-imperialist, anti-colonial, black, indigenous, and other POC thinkers in global conversation indicate that racialized groups can support each other's entangled struggles. These are the moves that excite me. These are the thinkers I am most edified by. But this does not mean 
that I will ignore the fact that we can all be complicit in different ways in one another's exclusion from power and resources. So let me return again to a chief charge against the list that it is anti-black, despite the vast majority of people on the list being white. Can non-Indigenous black people and POC to use U.S.-based lingo, that is people of color, be complicit in pretendianism and anti-Indigeneity broadly? Yes. In my experience living, working, and or traveling in 49 of 50 states, plus most of the provinces in Canada, I've not yet been to the territories, false claims to Indigenous ancestry slash identity happen across racial groups. That said, the foundation of playing Indian and Indigenous appropriations is white supremacy. I've written elsewhere about how U.S. racial formations attempt to eliminate natives from the land, in part by whitening us. This whitening of the Indian works in service of the above stage eight of white settler denial and appropriation. One can understand that the foundation of all of this is white supremacy and ultimately the settler state's appropriation of everything indigenous. And it is still then possible to point out a black person's false indigenous identity claim. This is not in its Uh, in and of itself, anti-black, just like pointing out a non-black indigenous person's anti-blackness is not in and of itself anti-indigenous. Why is the list mostly whites? Because white people, and by the way, also actual natives who code as white, have more access to socialization afforded by white privilege that puts them disproportionately into positions of influence. Whites and those who are white adjacent can rise through institutional ranks more easily because they're visually and then potentially more socially simpatico with that structure. The Canada Land podcast also noted this situation, wherein those individuals who are culturally intelligible and socially comfortable for whites or even attractive by normative white standards garner outsized attention and opportunity. This is a reason that pretendians take up such disproportionate indigenous space. In addition, white people's racial definitions not only permit white natives, they actively seek to whiten the Indian, as I already pointed out. Jacqueline Keeler has stated that she's not interested in investigating your uncle at the family barbecue with a Cherokee great-grandma story. She's investigating those who make often lucrative livings, claiming indigeneity, and who are more public-facing, And she's going to calculate their appropriation of resources from indigenous people and communities who would otherwise benefit from access to the university admissions, grants, employment, and other opportunities garnered by false claimants. Calculating the amount of fat a pretendian takes from indigenous people is a critical structural analysis. For those of you not in the know, the Dakota word washichu for white person allegedly means they who take the fat. That's the dominant translation, although my Dakota language instructor told me another less critical translation. Such analyses are never comfortable, not for those implicated in the taking, nor for their friends and colleagues. Sometimes, too, their families are pained and uncomfortable. What has been and continues to be taken, though? Indigenous lands and relations with non-human relatives, our governance structures, our children, resources beneath the land, our bones, blood, and DNA... And finally, our rights to define ourselves and say who belongs to us and who is us. 
This in turn leads to the appropriation of monies and resources allocated to and for indigenous peoples, often through multi-generational arduous struggle by natives and community to advocate for their people who are disadvantaged by colonialism. False claimants to indigenous identity are essentially doing what 19th century traders did who stole annuities as middlemen between the federal government and tribes. They are doing what squatters on indigenous lands did. Like pretendians, traders and squatters sometimes married native people. Some of them claim to be native themselves and centuries later, their descendants continue to live the lies. Perhaps the family memory of that lie has been lost or is so distant in the genealogy that it is but a whisper. It is easy to ignore. Or surely one's parents or grandparents or great-grandparents did not lie. Surely no one lied, not for land or money or opportunity. It is not only many more individuals than we wanted to admit, but the U.S. nation state itself that operates out of a historical amnesia and whitewashing of events that do not fit within a benevolent telling of U.S. foundations and the mythology of the pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps American dream. Central to that dream of a clean national slate is not only the enslavement of Africans, hard to even imagine that, but also very much the erasure of indigenous peoples. Again, see the eight stages of white settler colonial denial. No one has been immune from indigenous erasure. It saturates every single one of our institutions. Keeler's and her team's list indicates that the overwhelming number of the false claimants who benefit financially from pretendianism are whites. The white power structure always makes sure it benefits most. The stories behind some black people's history of false claims to indigeneity are painful in a way that I find heart-wrenching. But that does not mean they can also not be appropriative. Such claims are related to both forms of white supremacy I've mentioned. The first, indigenous erasure, which includes whitening the Indian, and the second, anti-blackness that emerges from the black-white binary and which has compelled some black people historically to reach for the romanticized native in their history as a small bit of relief from violent anti-blackness. Finally, I want to reiterate something I said on the Media Indigenous Colonial Cosplay episodes. I'm seeing the disconnected conflate their situation with frauds. A person scooped from their indigenous family as a child or the child of a native person who moved away from community or does not meet blood quantum criteria is not the same as a person fabricating an identity out of two Indian needles deep in the 19th, 18th, or 17th centuries of their ancestral haystack. The latter have no capacity to connect to a living community if their relations have all been non-Indigenous, usually white, for centuries. The former can reconnect. It is dismaying to see the reconnecting throw their lot in with and defend total fabricators of Indigenous ancestry. That move, at least on Twitter, seems to involve emphasizing individual wounds and challenges over the needs of the very Indigenous collectives people say they want to reconnect with. 
I am eager for a more substantive analysis of this issue that will come from our communities when this social media firestorm around the list is quieted. I will continue to try and filter out the ad hominem attacks on Twitter. I deleted Facebook several months ago. Deflection and bad faith analyses of critical structural critiques of largely white appropriation of indigenous resources. One of my South Dakota friends lamented, as have others across the U.S. and Canada, how much time Indigenous people spend dealing with situations like this instead of working on all of the projects and relation building that we would rather prioritize. We are always having to push back, assert our claims and authorities and be in a defensive position. I have been writing all night and the sun is now fully up. When will the appropriation cease? How will restitution of stolen resources be made? Those who knowingly played Indian or who find they've been living within multi-generational mythologies of native ancestry must reckon with their complicity in trying to absorb the native into America, quote unquote. I have no idea how such people can possibly make material restitution for what they have taken, but I do know that they should be capable of confronting that question and the truths and lies of their histories. Indigenous peoples need individuals to make examples of themselves, face hard truths, not deflect or double down when confronted with evidence. My friend ended our conversation today with an assessment that while many in our communities might traditionally wait, hold back and see what happens with a person who violates our social norms, some in our communities do take these things head on. But that's not everyone's role. For the fewer who do attack a problem directly, they put themselves at greater risk. But again, we each have our role, and I do not diminish the persons who, for reasons they may keep to themselves, stay quiet. I reiterate that I have questions about the strategy of the list, as do my friends back home. We hashed over methodological and ethical questions on media indigena. I still haven't answered those questions. But I do know that the discomforting project of the list is a reflection of the great and perverse risk to Indigenous communities for hundreds of years now by settler appropriation of everything. I've also been asked in the last couple months since the list came into public view to be on several advisory and discussion panels taking more assertive approaches to regulating access to institutional resources reserved for Indigenous people. I suspect Jacqueline Keeler has helped wedge open a very heavy door. I see others walking quietly through that door to confront this issue more directly than we have been able to confront it. I will not walk through that door and not acknowledge the risks she is taking by refusing to be the stoic, noble Indian. I thank my three friends whose wisdom I respect for asking or encouraging me to weigh in. Thanks for listening.